Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 10. This time we're taking a look at Conan Doyle's 1891 short story, A Straggler of Fifteen, and the play based on it, which came to be known simply as Waterloo. And we have quite a cast of characters both on stage and off, including such luminaries of the late Victorian theatre as Henry Irving, Bram Stoker and George Bernard Shaw. And here's Paul with the synopsis. A Straggler of Fifteen is more an extended domestic vignette than a short story. The piece begins with the arrival of young Nora Brewster at Arsenal View Woolwich in October 1881 to look after her great-uncle Gregory, a 90-year-old veteran of the Battle of Waterloo. On his wall, she notices a medal and a framed newspaper citation recording his heroism during the defence of the Ugamon farm complex. She realises her great-uncle is no ordinary old man. This is confirmed by a succession of visitors, including members of the local artillery garrison, and the current commanding officer of the Scots Guards, Brewster's old regiment. A more ominous presence, however, is the local doctor, and as Nora grows closer to one of the most regular callers, Sergeant Archie MacDonald, and dreams of the future, Corporal Gregory Brewster dwells ever more upon the past and the inevitable reunion with his Waterloo comrades. Let's begin with the writing and publication history of the short story, A Straggler of Fifteen. The story was written in summer 1890, we have uh, evidence that uh, Conan Doyle sent the story to his new agent, A.P. Watt, uh, around about the 25th of September, 1890. That's a letter in the Berg Collection in New York. Uh, and Watt, in turn, sold the story to a new weekly review, Black and White magazine, which ultimately published the story on the 21st of March, 1891. And it was also published in Harper's Weekly in the United States, on the same day. Um, As an aside, both versions are accompanied by illustrations by William B. Wallen, who would eventually go on to illustrate the uh, Brigadier Gerard stories. Now, the immediate inspiration for the story was almost certainly the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, um, the battle having taken place on the 18th of June, 1815. And according to W.D. King, whose volume Henry Irving's Waterloo came out in 1993, Um, There was a deluge of publications that celebrated the anniversary, but there is also a deeper-rooted interest in um, Waterloo and Napoleon for Conan Doyle. His mother had told him tales of her ancestor, Major General Sir Dennis Pack, who led Pack's brigade at Waterloo. And when Conan Doyle visited London in 1874 at the age of 15, he visited Madame Tussaud uh, and its waxwork diorama, The Shrine of Napoleon, uh, at that time, the the uh, Madame Tussauds was located in the Baker Street Bazaar. And it was also on that visit that he first saw Irving um, play Hamlet, which we'll come to later. 
So the story, A Struggler of 15, was then included in the collection Round the Red Lamp, a collection of medical tales which we've mentioned in this podcast series before. Um, it's an odd one mixing medicine and gothic stories, and indeed in the case of Sweethearts and A Struggler of 15, something nearer to melodrama. And the story was then relocated to a collection called Tales of the Ring and Camp in 1922, which, as the name suggests, includes boxing stories and, and military adventures. And Straggler is one of several Napoleonic works that Conan Doyle wrote around this time. Uh, there's a foreign office romance in 1894. Uh, there's obviously the Brigadier Gerard stories, which he starts writing in 1894 as well. And there's also The Great Shadow, written in spring 1892, which features a very detailed description of the Battle of Waterloo. So let's start with the Battle of Waterloo itself. Um, Paul, can you set the scene of what happened at the Battle of Waterloo? Yeah, um, the Battle of Waterloo was the culminating battle of a short campaign uh, in June 1815, uh, following uh, Napoleon's return from exile on the island of Elba and his attempt to reassert his power as Emperor of France. Um, so before the main battle, there were three smaller battles uh, fought at Catrebras, Wavre and Ligny, which involved both Allied British forces and Prussian forces. Uh, the main battle itself it has been brilliantly encapsulated um, by um, the writer George MacDonald Fraser, famous for his Flashman series, mm. who, who's, who writes of it, in its very simplest terms, the French occupied a slope facing the British and their allies on the crest opposite. Napoleon delivered a left hook at Hougoumont, a farmhouse on the British right front, and was stopped by the guards. He assaulted across the valley throughout the day, with cavalry and infantry, and the British held on. With the Prussians under Blücher arriving, Napoleon made a last dramatic effort, launching the old guard at the Allied centre. The British guards drove them back. Wellington said, Oh, damn it, in for a penny, in for a pound, and advanced his whole force, and that was the Battle of Waterloo. So that's in a very, very uh, simple form. And Fraser really does bring out there the central importance of Hougoumont in the yeah. Battle of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a bit more about that, because that's central to the story of Corporal Brewster. Hougoumont was, was really, the, it was the linchpin of, of Wellington's western flank, um, and absolutely had to be held uh, to prevent the potential rolling up of his army's right wing. And, and centre. So thus he, he placed companies from all three guards regiments in and around the farm, uh, together with units from the King's German Legion, supported by Brunswickers, Hanoverians and Nassauers, mostly light infantry, trained to act as independent skirmishers. Mm. Um, the Battle of Waterloo actually began at around 11.30 in the morning with an attack on Hougoumont, um, which, which was probably intended as, as a diversionary feint. Uh, to keep its garrison occupied and to, to draw troops from Wellington's centre, which was to be the real focus of, of Napoleon's main attack. Um, but whatever the intention, the fierce fighting around Hougoumont took on a momentum of its own. Um, at one point, a party from the French 1st Light Infantry, led by the axe-wielding Sous-Lieutenant Le Gros, who was known as L'Enfonceur, the smasher, <laughs> broke through the north gate. Uh, but a counterattack led by Lieutenant Colonel James Macdonnell uh, of the second guards, the uh, the Coldstream guards, mm. uh, retook the gate. And th th this this battle within a battle raged all day at massive cost to the French, who never took the site, despite their artillery burning down the chateau itself and some of its outbuildings. Uh, the garrison held uh, without the need for major reinforcements. They got some units drafted in throughout the day, the, the ones mm. when Wellington could spare. 
um, it, it, if, if Wellington had had to put more reinforcements in, it would have drained its centre, allowing Napoleon's main attack possibly to smash through. Um, especially when the the other main farmhouse involved in the battle, Les Saintes, which was held by the King's German Legion, fell after the, its garrison did run out of ammunition. Oh. Um, so un, unlike Les Saintes, Hougoumont did manage to keep its ammunition going and managed to hold out. And and this this whole the supply of ammunition is one of the central or the central point of of Conan Doyle's story, Stragra Fifteen. Mm. And Corporal Brewster's role in replenishing the uh, ammunition uh, of the garrison is central to A Straggler of Fifteen, and Conan Doyle neatly covers the backstory in uh, a newspaper clipping which contains his citation. Yes, and in in that citation, Conan Doyle neatly summarises the important role of of the defence of Ougamont in the the wider picture of the battle itself and uh, manages to provide this this uh, standout uh, singular story of of, of heroism um, so i'll just just quote part of the the citation it appears that on the ever memorable 18th of june four companies of the third guards and of the cold streams under the command of colonels maitland and bing held the important farmhouse of Ougamont at the right of the british position At a critical point of the action, these troops found themselves short of powder, seeing that Generals Foy and Jérôme Bonaparte were again massing their infantry for an attack on the position, Colonel Bing dispatched Corporal Brewster to the rear to hasten up the reserve ammunition. Brewster came upon two powder tumbrils of the Nassau division and succeeded, after menacing the drivers with his musket, in inducing them to convey their powder to Ougamont. In his absence, however, the hedges surrounding the position had been set on fire by a howitzer battery of the French, and the passage of the carts full of powder became a most hazardous matter. The first tumbril exploded, blowing the driver to fragments. Daunted by the fate of his comrade, the second driver turned his horses, but Corporal Brewster, springing upon his seat, hurled the man down, and urging the powder cart through the flames, succeeded in forcing his way to his companions. To this gallant deed may be directly attributed the success of British arms, for without powder it would have been impossible to have held Hougoumont, and the Duke of Wellington had repeatedly declared that had Hougoumont fallen, as well as Les he would have found it impossible to have held his ground. And that really positions how Brewster's uh, action is so central to the success of this incredibly important military victory. Um, the, it's almost a Russian doll effect, isn't it? That within the Battle of Waterloo, there is another, which is the, the action around Hougoumont. And then within Hougoumont, there is actually the actions of Brewster. Um, and so ultimately on the actions of one individual, the fate of the battle turns. Yes, it, it, it... Essentially, the idea that Conan Doyle's playing with here is, is had Brewster not got the ammunition through to Ougamont, the French would have been able to roll up Wellington's right wing and smash into his centre from the flank. Mm. And it's almost like Conan Doyle is playing with the notion of the great man theory of history, where we usually think about um, great individuals such as Napoleon or um, Wellington. And in this case, it's an ordinary man. Who, mm. on, and on his individual brave actions, the, the, the success of the action... The fate of nations may depend. Indeed, indeed. And Conan Doyle appears to have based uh, Brewster's action on a reported incident. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, the, the incident uh, appeared in a, a letter written to the historian, um, Captain William Cyborn, uh, by Captain Horace Beauchamp Seymour, who was an aide-de-camp 
of Lord Uxbridge, uh, Wellington's second-in-command, uh, and he wrote to Cyborn to say, Late in the day of the 18th, I was called to by some officers of the 3rd Guards defending Hougoumont to use my best endeavours to send them musket ammunition. Soon afterwards, I fell in with a private of the wagon train in charge of a tumbrel on the crest of the position. I merely pointed out to him where he was wanted, when he gallantly started his horses and drove straight down the hill to the farm, to the gate of which I saw him arrive. He must have lost his horses, as there was a severe fire kept on him. I feel convinced that to that man's service the guards owe their ammunition. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's interesting that this this differs from Doyle's account of of the same incident essentially in 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 a number of ways. Uh, one is that that Seymour meets the, uh, the the wagon driver who's a private in the wagon train rather than the the uh, the pair of tumbrils that that uh, Conan Doyle brings in that are manned by Nassauers who were German allies of uh, of of the uh, of the british um doyle seems to use the incident to show the cowardice of the nassauers and yeah. the heroism of the british and this is a typical sort of national prejudice around waterloo uh, which which was a constant throughout the 19th century um that the the, the battle was won purely by 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 the British element uh, of the Allied army and, and forgets the, the Dutch, Belgian and German elements that were, were also in there. Um, and then there's a second uh, area where, where, where Conan Doyle changes the wagon train driver into a guardsman. Mm. Uh, he thereby glamorizing the character because um, the, the wagon train isn't such a glamorous regiment. Although their, their work was absolutely essential to the army. Um, so, so, so Doyle has to, uh, or Doyle feels he has to um, kind of glamorize the character a bit more. Mm. And this, this sort of prejudice is, is actually does carry on to a, a certain extent um, to the present time. It's, it's interesting going back to the George MacDonald Fraser quote that Fraser deliberately picks out the guards and these, this is the British guards, mm. um, and and makes out that it was down to them completely that the day was won. Fraser, as a modern writer, still writes out the Allied elements of of the of the British army commanded by by Wellington, or the Allied British army commanded by Wellington. And ultimately, this 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 kind of uh, prejudice and this approach to the Battle of Waterloo, um, particularly from from British historians, uh, it could really be traced back to the Duke of Wellington himself, who who after the battle remarked that no troops but the British could have held Hougoumont, and only the best of them at that. Um, so Wellington himself was was almost denying the presence of the of the the, the Nassauers and Brunswickers at Ugamal. Mm -hmm. Now, Seymour's letter is something of a puzzle at the heart of A Struggler of 15, because we don't quite know when um, or if Conan Doyle read the original letter. W.D. King suggested that Conan Doyle might have been particularly influenced by a volume entitled Waterloo Letters by Herbert Seiborn, uh, which was a compilation of hitherto unpublished letters from officers of the Waterloo campaign that had originally been um, collected by uh, Herbert's father, Captain William Cyborn, in the 1830s. Um, but unfortunately, that um, volume came out too late for Conan Doyle to uh, uh, to read for the writing of A Straggler of 15. We know that he wrote it in September, or at least submitted it to A.P. Watt in 
uh, September 1890, and Waterloo Letters didn't come out until 1891, uh, which is uh, which is too late, as Cliff Goldfarb's pointed out. And, and we have good evidence that uh, Conan Doyle read Cyborn because he mentions it in Through the Magic Door. Um, he says, uh, you see that the literature of Waterloo is well represented in my small military library. Of all books dealing with the personal views of the matter, I think that Cyborn's Letters, which is a collection of the narratives of surviving officers made by Cyborn in 1827, is the most interesting. There was an earlier uh, history of Waterloo written by Captain William Cyborn, drawing on the, the letters, including a two-volume edition in 1844, but that doesn't refer to the Seymour incident either. Um, so we're left with a bit of a puzzle as to how Conan Doyle got hold of this story, if indeed if indeed he did. So so where did Conan Doyle get this story from? It, it's it's too close to um, Horace Seymour's account of 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 the uh, the story of the the wagon train driver to be coincidence. Somehow Conan Doyle has got hold of this story, hmm. um, and there's also the the name Brewster. Where did where did Conan Doyle get the name from? Because during our, our research into this podcast, we we, we found out that the uh, the Museum of the Royal Corps of Logistics uh, actually has a, a silver Waterloo medal, uh, which is isn't the official Waterloo medal, which was issued to all troops. Um, it's it's a privately made um, medal to uh, in, inscribed reward of bravery to corporal brewster rwt royal wagon train from the officers of the coldstream guards for his action at waterloo in the 18th 1815 hmm. um now the the origins of this this medal are, are quite obscure um I, i've spoken to the the curator um and it was bought from a collector who'd bought it at auction in america uh, so how it got to America in the first place is, is a story in itself, which is, is, is mm. one we, we, we wonder about. Um, but we don't know when the medal was made. A previous curator does seem to think that it, it's of the period. Yeah. So it's it, it's probably somewhere between 1815 to 1830, somewhere in, in, in that sort of time. Um, and it just makes you wonder, did, did Conan Doyle see this medal? Mm. Where, where where has it been before it ended up at auction in America? Uh, is this is this the origins of of the, the name Brewster for Gregory Brewster? Uh, the, the 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 mystery almost deepens. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, conceivably, because this isn't an official Waterloo uh, medal, this could conceivably be produced by officers in gratitude to this individual. But one of the questions we had was: was this a stage prop? But it would appear that it has too much silver content and too much detail for a yeah, um, stage prop. Yes, it's 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 too too detailed. The audience wouldn't um, wouldn't be able to see the actual engraving, um, and it's also the fact that that if this were a stage prop, it would more than likely be from the the, the third guards, not the second guards, <laughs> yes. because Brewster in the story is actually a corporal in the in the third guards, and Brewster's not in the wagon train either. No. Uh, I mean, one of the other stories which has appeared around this private Brewster, who appears to have been, uh, he could have been Joshua or Joseph, Brewster or Brewer. Mm. Uh, and then another story that's built around him is that for his actions, he was promoted from the Royal Wagon Train into the Third Guards as a corporal. Uh. 
but this seems too pat to yeah. the Conan Doyle story. So again, it seems it's this this mixing of, of of fact and fiction, which has has surrounded Waterloo. I mean, one example, interestingly connected to this, is Captain Horace Seymour, mm. who told the story to Cyborn, um, was actually the basis for a character, uh, Captain Trevanian, I think it was, in in um, Charles Lever's novel Harry Lorrequer, published in eighteen thirty eight. So so. Uh, Seymour himself was was a larger than life character who's described as the uh, the biggest and strongest man in the British Army, and he seems to have been a, a kind of a real life character who who took on a fictional life, almost like lifeguardsman Shaw, who was one of the the, the famous characters of Waterloo, who was a pugilist uh, <laughs> in in the the lifeguards, and he died at Waterloo, and he took on after his death. He became almost a fictional character. So there's all sorts of mixing of, of fact and fiction around the Battle of Waterloo as, as the battle itself attains uh, a level of, of, of myth and legend around itself. Hmm. Fascinating stuff, really. And, hmm. and if anybody listening to the podcast has any more information about this medal, we'd be delighted to hear. There are some other possible inspirations that people have suggested along the way for for the story, they're nothing quite as compelling as as the Seymour letter, or hopefully the this this medal. And a couple of contemporaries wrote of uh, possible influences on Conan Doyle. Lyman Beecher Glover, uh, the drama critic of the Chicago Times Herald, uh, suggested that Conan Doyle may have been influenced by an earlier play entitled Napoleon's Old Guard, uh, later revised to The Old Guard, which was written by Irish actor and playwright Dion Boussico in 1836, and that. Um, is a tale about a Waterloo survivor, uh, Captain Haversack, a member of Napoleon's Imperial Guard, so it's on the French side this time. Um, and uh, and he uh, has a similar ending to Corporal Brewster <laughs> as he runs in with a musket, reliving his glory days before, before promptly dying on stage. Um, and uh, the play was an incredibly popular one on both sides of the Atlantic, but um, there's no evidence of it being uh, played at... Um, uh, at the Lyceum. Nevertheless, Conan Doyle may have seen it. Another influence suggested by a contemporary was um, uh, Hubert von Herkomer's um, painting The Last Muster, painted in 1875, which is a, an amazing portrait. It shows the Chelsea pensioners attending morning service, and one of the soldiers has died in the pews uh, while his, his neighbour checks his pulse. And it's a it's an incredibly tragic image, um, and that was suggested by a reviewer in the Daily Telegraph on 22nd September 1894. One of the most appealing suggestions that's been made has come from Cliff Goldfarb, who suggested that uh, W.B. Wallen, who would ultimately go on to illustrate A Struggler of 15, and indeed the Brigadier Gerard stories, um, had done an illustration entitled My Old Regiment, which was published in the Illustrated London News on the 21st of March 1889, and it shows an old soldier in his garden looking over the picket fence, saluting his regiment as it walks past. And um, Conan Doyle had certainly read the Illustrated London News, so it's plausible he saw the work, um, although there's no evidence that um, uh, Conan Doyle then made any suggestion that Wallen should be the illustrator for the Gerard stories or indeed Straggler. But those are a number of other uh, alternative uh, potential influences, though I think none as compelling as, as the Seymour account. No, it's it's quite fascinating with you mentioning the um, the Chelsea pensioners pictures as well because uh, 
in uh, a book which came out in um, 2015 uh, to coincide with the uh, bicentenary of the Battle of Waterloo, Gareth Glover's Waterloo and a Hundred Objects. He uh, he reproduces a, an, an 1880 photograph. Uh, entitled Last Survivors of Waterloo in Chelsea Hospital, June 1880. Um, and on it, John Mackay of the 42nd Regiment, who's 95 years old, Nash Hannay of the 7th Hussars, 88 years old, Benjamin Bumstead, 73rd Regiment, 82 years old, and lastly, Samson Webb of the 3rd Foot Guards, who is 82 years old, who, who this would be an exact contemporary of Corporal Brewster in the same regiment. Well, that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, and we, and we know from the Times... Uh, at around the time of the um, 75th anniversary, saying that there were that by then, that's 1890, no British survivors of the battle among the Chelsea pensioners. So, the last survivor, um, again, this is according to to Gareth Glover, uh, the last known British survivor who was actually old enough to fight at the Battle of Waterloo was Maurice Shea of the 73rd Foot, who died in 1892, um, and the the same. Gent is is mentioned in uh, Nick Fuchs' book Dancing into Battle. Um, uh, says that this uh, that Maurice died in Canada, aged ninety seven. Yeah, and there was a New Statesman report um, about five six years ago that noted that um, the last survivor of Waterloo was a, a chap called Louis Victor Bayo, who was twenty two at the time of the battle and died in eighteen ninety eight at the grand age of one hundred and four. <laughs> now we said at the outset that a straggler of fifteen ultimately was turned into a very successful stage play, uh, which became known as uh, Waterloo. Um, now, the idea for turning Struggler into a play was not Conan Doyle's. Uh, he had previously uh, attempted and ultimately abandoned a play called uh, Angels of Darkness, which shares its Mormon plotline with uh, A Study in Scarlet. It's not a terribly great achievement, um, and you can see why Conan Doyle abandoned it, um, although it is notable because it introduces a San Francisco doctor called Watson, um, and jury's out on whether or not it was written before or after a study in Scarlet. Uh, in in terms of the naivety of the writing, I'm tempted to think it's probably predates um, a study in Scarlet. So the idea of actually turning Straggler into a play wasn't Conan Doyle's. It was um, it was J. M. Barry who would ultimately go on to write Peter Pan, and he suggested Conan Doyle turn Straggler into a into a play in January 1892. Uh, Barry was looking for a curtain raiser for a new play he had written, uh, Walker London, which was by then in rehearsals. And Conan Doyle was absolutely delighted to be asked and uh, told his mother this would be a good start for writing uh, in the theatre. But Barry's play was a a three-act farce, uh, and his choice of lead uh, was the actor-manager J.L. Toole, um, who was a a comic actor, and Conan Doyle was really unhappy with with the choice. Just an aside on J.L. Toole, he was noted for his portrayal of tender-hearted leads in domestic melodramas, including adaptations of Busico. So it may well be that uh, Toole had actually um, performed in Napoleon's Old Guard, which was suggested as one of the possible influences on um, on A Struggler of 15. Having separated with Barry uh, over the choice of lead actor, Conan Doyle decided to approach Henry Irving, uh, and there has been su- some suggestion that he wrote the story or the play with Irving in mind. Uh, but before he sent it to Irving, he sent the manuscript to George Moore, the Irish novelist uh, and dramatist, and asked whether Moore had any suggestions to make. Um, Moore replied, I don't know if your play would act, that is to say, if a few alterations would fit it for the stage, uh, but I do know that it made me cry like a child. I think it is the most pathetic thing I ever read in my life, pathetic positively in that sense um uh 
Uh, and that comes from a, a quote in the uh, biography from Hesketh Pearson. So, so practically a month after J.M. Barry suggested that um, Conan Doyle adapt A Struggler of Fifteen, Conan Doyle sent the piece to Irving, um, whom he'd admired since his first visit to London uh, at the age of 15. Conan Doyle wrote to his mother, Mary Doyle, on uh, the 26th of February, 1892, saying, I write to Henry Irving tonight to see if he will produce my veteran play. I wonder what he'll say. And it's at this point that Irving and Bram Stoker come into the picture. Yeah, um, their connection goes back to the 1870s. Uh, and of course, Stoker is more famous these days as, as the author of Dracula. Um, but uh, in the 1870s, he was working as a clerk at, uh, for, for the, um, the Irish Civil Service at Dublin Castle um, and also working unpaid part-time as, as a drama critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. He'd seen Irving perform as Hamlet twice in November, December 1876, uh, and was was wrote two very enthusiastic reviews of the performance, which delighted Irving. So Irving invited um, Stoker to meet him uh, at his hotel in Dublin, um, and at this this small gathering, uh, Irving did one of his or performed one of his party pieces which was a, a dramatic reading of of thomas hood's very melodramatic poem the dream of eugene Aram. and uh, at the end of this this performance stoker fell into something uh, like a fit of hysterics which which delighted irving even more <laughs> and he ran into this as stoker tells it he ran into a room came back with a photograph of himself signed to stoker to my dear friend stoker god bless you god bless you henry irving um, and from there was was cemented a, a, a friendship and also a, 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 a relationship of, of admirer and uh, and hero. Mm. Um, and in 1878, when Irving took out the lease on the Lyceum Theatre in London, he invited uh, Stoker to become his business manager, which uh, Stoker accepted. He threw up his job um, at Dublin Castle, which horrified his mother, who thought he was throwing away his life to follow a strolling player. <laughs> um, but the uh, the whole uh, Lyceum venture at that point was it was a huge success, and uh, and the Lyceum became the centre of of or one of the centres of of London social life of that era, with with Irving and Stoker absolutely at the heart of it. Mm. So when Doyle sent the, uh, the 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 play version of a Straggler of fifteen to Irving. He he was aiming high, mm. um, and and we we do actually get a sense um, in uh, the sign of the four of of the Lyceum's place in in London social life uh, when Holmes, Watson, and Mary Morstan meet Thaddeus Sholto, representative at the third pillar from the left outside the Lyceum Theatre. Mm. Uh, and Watson comments, at the Lyceum Theatre, the crowds were already thick at the side entrances. In front, a continuous stream of hansoms and four-wheelers were rattling up, discharging their cargoes of shirt-fronted men and beshawled, bediamonded women, which shows that the Lyceum was really a centre of, of um, social life and, and money. Mm. And the play itself, we think, fell into the hands of Stoker first. Yes, uh, Stoker records this in his um, personal reminiscences of Henry Irving, which he wrote in 1906, uh, following uh, Irving's death uh, the year before. Um, and, and as Stoker tells the story, uh, he says, One day, early in March 1892, whilst we were rehearsing Tennyson's play The Foresters, Irving came into the office in a hurry. He was a little late. 
As he came hurrying out to the stage, he stopped beside my table where I was writing, and laying a parcel on it, he said, I wish you would throw an eye over that during rehearsal. It came this morning. You can tell me what you think of it when I come off. I took up the packet and unrolled a number of typewritten sheets, a little longer than foolscap. I read it with profound interest and was touched by its humour and pathos to my very heart's core. It was very short, and before Irving came in again from the stage, I had read it a second time. When he came in, he said presently, in an unconcerned way, By the way, did you read that play? Yes. What did you think of it? I think this, I said, that that play is never going to leave the Lyceum. You must own it at any price. It is made for you. So I think too, he said heartily. You had better write to the author today and ask him what cheque we are to send. We had better buy the whole rights. Who is the author? Conan Doyle. Uh, and the, the, there's an interesting point there, uh, a little aside on, on Conan Doyle, where, where Stoker's talking about the, the, the receipt of this package. Um, when he describes it, I took up the packet and unrolled a number of typewritten sheets, and Doyle did tend to send his manuscripts rolled rather than flat. Yes, he did, yeah. And Conan Doyle and Bram Stoker became uh, pretty good friends. Yeah, um, they, they they also they moved in similar circles, uh, which which included the Argonauts Club and the Irish Literary Society, which which Stoker had had co-founded, um, and their their friendship grew to such an extent that that Stoker and his wife Florence were actually invited to Conan Doyle's second wedding in in nineteen o seven, and and um, Conan Doyle was very complimentary of Stoker's writings. There's a notable letter about um, Dracula. Um, but also he wrote to him in uh, 1902 to congratulate him on the mystery of the sea, uh, in which um, Conan Doyle uh, mentioned um, Stoker's Celtic imagination and glamour. Mm, and it's interesting with, with that side of things, the, the, the Celtic side of things, that, that these two men, um, both of, of, of Irish origins and background, come from, from very different traditions within that, with, with uh, Conan Doyle coming from, from Catholic origins and Stoker being very much part of the, the, the Protestant ascendancy. Mm. Now, W.D. King is uh, somewhat sceptical of this version of events and, um, and says it certainly benefits from hindsight, but he doesn't actually offer... An alternative, um, an alternative explanation. Certainly, Irving did buy the rights outright uh, for a hundred pounds, um, and once it was successful, he uh, paid Conan Doyle an additional guinea per performance in in gratitude, supposedly. Uh, yes, this is what uh, Conan Doyle claims, but he he, he might have been um, unfair to to Sir Henry because, uh, according to the uh, historian Geoffrey Richards in his two thousand and five study of of, of Irving, um, Irving actually paid Doyle two guineas per performance. And and given there were three hundred and forty five performances overall, that's seven hundred pounds on top of the original yes. hundred pounds. So. <laughs> and considering that the rights are. Yeah, you know, that Irving was was just going to buy the rights rights outright. Mm. It's, it's a nice you know, cash cow on top. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And um, according to Stoker, Irving only asked uh, Conan Doyle to consolidate the first few pages. Uh, King does have a, a a very complete study of the amendments, and he does confirm that you know in March eighteen ninety two, Irving via Stoker asked that um, the two women who are uh, at the beginning of the play were were dropped. Um, they're a sort of unnecessary bit of scene setting and they're replaced by the grand niece uh, to set the scene. There's also a earlier draft from 
uh, February 1893, which has a longer final scene between Nora and uh, Sergeant MacDonald, the, uh, her love interest. And there are later drafts that remove the family legend that Brewster could fell an ox and the colonel's aside that it would be much better if Brewster died at Hougamont. And there are some various additional stage directions that are uh, added, perhaps capturing Irving's actions in, in rehearsal. Now, there has been a suggestion that the play um, was adapted in such a way as to draw on Erkman Shachtran's The Bells, um, which was a popular piece, uh, almost synonymous with uh, Henry Irving. But um, I, I think that's somewhat unlikely, given that the, the first performance of um, Straggler of 15 was was on the same billing as The Bells. It's hardly likely that you would put the two the two on uh, the same opening night. Yes, the audience. Haven't we just seen this? Mm. But perhaps the most lasting change to A Straggler of 15 was was obviously the title. Um, the, the play had been submitted to Irving as A Straggler of 15. Um, and the play that is recorded uh, as being submitted to the Lord Chamberlain's office on the 14th of February 1893 was also um, titled A Straggler of 15. Um, but that uh, copy, which um, still exists within the British Library in London, um, has the title scored through in pencil and replaced with the title A Story of Waterloo. Um, the first three words were subsequently dropped during the run. But presumably this was done for for, for reasons of, of, of trying to attract an audience. If you put the word Waterloo in, it will intrigue and, and, and attract more people. Mm, absolutely. And that brings us to the production of the play. It actually took two and a half years before Irving first performed Waterloo. Um, it was first performed at Bristol on the 21st of September 1894. And some people have suggested that it was performed in the provinces, as it were, to uh, to protect it from negative reviews. But actually, um, there were whole um, armies of uh, reviewers who arrived in Bristol on train to uh, to review the opening night. Conan Doyle himself wasn't present at the performance. He uh, was due to set sail with Innes for uh, a lecture tour of America the following day. And according to A Life in Letters, a short time later, uh, Conan Doyle had dinner with the editor of the Chicago Times, who'd been present at the uh, performance and told him that the play had been an, an enormous success. It finally opened at the Lyceum on the 4th of May, 1895, and W.D. King describes how it immediately became a, a cultural phenomenon. Reviewers uh, tended to eulogize Irving, but some of them were a, a little bit more reserved about the play, although there is some debate as to how far the success of Waterloo is down to Irving and how far it is actually down to to the quality of the writing. Yeah, someone who, who commented on this uh, later on was 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 the the writer Thomas Anstey Guthrie, who wrote under the pen name F. Anstey uh, novels such as, as Vice Versa. But he was part of um, a, a gang of of, of writers and, and artists who would almost hang out at the Lyceum. Anthony Hope, the author of Prisoner of Zender, mm. was another. In his autobiography, A Long Retrospect, um, he talks about the, the, this, the world of the Lyceum and, and, and Irving. Um, and uh, he talks about uh, Irving's performances in, in Faust, the Leon Mail and, and the Bells, and says, and, and all these three plays were poor enough in themselves. It was Irving's genius that gave them their life and magic. But then he goes on to discuss Waterloo um, uh, and says, as Sergeant Brewster in the late Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's excellent one-act play Waterloo, Irving perhaps for the only time was unrecognisable. 
nothing could have been truer or more moving than his dying Peninsula veteran. Uh, we'll excuse him getting it wrong that it's Corporal Brewster. He's actually Waterloo, not a Peninsula veteran. <laughs> but it, it's he's obviously very, very taken with 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 Doyle as a writer here, as well as Irving's performance. Mm-hmm. Indeed, but um, but not everybody was a fan. Um, there's a very famous and, and quite hilarious um, caustic review of Waterloo by George Bernard Shaw entitled uh, Mr. Irving Takes Paragoric, uh, which skewers Irving. Um, and uh, it, it felt to be a hallmark in theatre criticism, marking the end of a, a sort of unspoken collusion between the theatre and um, and critics, both of whom were obviously dependent on plays to be uh, to be in work, and uh, and it's the start of a, a, the emergence of a gloves off form of critiquing, uh, which we can sadly see uh, to this day. Conan Doyle and Bernard Shaw had a fairly difficult uh, relationship. Uh, famously, they were neighbours in Hindhead, and uh, Conan Doyle at that time was living in a house uh, called Undershaw, which came to have uh, a, a second meaning to the name. Um, there was already some bad blood between Conan Doyle and, and Bernard Shaw by the time that um, uh, Waterloo was first performed. Bernard Shaw had given a, an incredibly negative review of uh, Conan Doyle's first stage play, The Ill-Fated Jane Annie or The Good Conduct Prize, which was written with J.M. Barry, uh, which uh, Bernard Shaw described as the most unblushing outburst of tomfoolery that two responsible citizens could conceivably <laughs> indulge in public. Um and they would go on to have a series of public spats, uh, including a uh, public meeting in 1899 where Conan Doyle spoke in favour of disarmament to be opposed by his neighbour Bernard Shaw, um, and, and probably most famously over the Titanic um, in 1912 where Bernard Shaw was um, incredibly critical of the outpouring of what he described as romantic lying in, in journalistic accounts which had uh, lauded British virtues and and. He uh, he sort of drew into question Captain Smith's heroism, and Conan Doyle came immediately to the rescue. He he came back in uh, in one letter to Bernard Shaw with some wonderful backhanded magnanimity. Uh, the worst I think or say of Mister Shaw is that his many brilliant gifts do not include the power of weighing evidence, nor has he that quality, call it good taste, humanity, or what you will, which prevents a man from needlessly hurting the feelings of others. Um, of course, Bernard Shaw sort of won the battle over Captain Smith over time, who's uh, not um, not done well <laughs> in history. Um, uh, but they did actually agree over some things. They agreed over uh, Roger Casement in particular, and they uh, both collaborated uh, to try and um, have uh, Casement's death sentence commuted. So in his review, Mr. Irving takes Paragoric, which appeared in the Saturday Review of the 11th of May, 1895. Um, Bernard writes that uh, critics are unable to discriminate between the execution done by the actor's art and that done by Mr. Conan Doyle's ingenious exploitation of the ready-made pathos of old age. It is my steady purpose to do what I can to drive such sketches as a story of Waterloo with their ready-made feelings and prearranged effects away to the music hall, which is their proper place. Bernard Shaw was very much in in pursuit of high art and higher meaning um, through realism, and um, he definitely seems to have reacted incredibly negatively to, to to both Irving's performance and indeed the subject matter. He did approach the same material in a play, The Man of Destiny, which he started writing in 1895, around the same time as this um, very uh, acerbic review, and was um, first. And that play was first performed in 1897, um, but with far less popular success than, than Waterloo. 
But it wasn't just Bernard Shaw who took a, a dislike to uh, to the play and indeed to, to Conan Doyle. Um, the editor of the Saturday Review uh, between 1894 and 98 was Frank Harris, an Irish-American novelist and short story writer um, whose um, autobiography, My Life and Loves 1931, is, is famously lewd. Um, Harris may have written an anonymous review of Waterloo in the Saturday Review that predated Shaw's um, first column with the magazine. And Harris intensely disliked Conan Doyle, considering him far too commercial. Uh, and in a very nasty aside in the 1920s, described uh, God as being uncreative, having, quote, mediocre fish-like productivity. He is a prodigious, a giant Conan Doyle. Harris just, he was a scurrilous character who just thrived on conflict. And just going back to uh, to King's point about the, uh, the 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 play being a cultural phenomenon, it, it really did uh, sink into into culture. And, and there's 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 something in Bernard Shaw's rather snide comment that it, it's uh, more suited to the music hall than the legitimate theatre, as it were, mm. um, because of its 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 sentimental and populist appeal, uh, which which went quite deep. Um, but it, it, its its success shows how the the public loved it, and it, it it's playing on two things in the uh, you know the 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 the, uh, the old age aspect, but also the Waterloo aspect itself. The fact that Waterloo really was you know it had sunk into the British popular psyche at this point. It was almost the root of of, of 19th century British success. Uh, you know, once that battle was over, Britain then. Was was free to follow her destiny to become the uh, the, the the leading colonial power mm. of of the nineteenth century, and this is really nicely uh, illustrated um, in eighteen ninety seven, the the year of um, Queen Victoria's uh, Diamond Jubilee, uh, when on the uh, the twenty fifth of June, two thousand colonial troops marched from Chelsea Barracks to the Lyceum, where they were treated to a performance of Waterloo. Um, so it, it, it's 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 its power was was very much demonstrated by that, mm. um, and and at a very <laughs> sort of lower cultural level, um, you can look at something like in 1915, uh, Wills and Co issued a set of cigarette cards of the Battle of Waterloo, and one of these cigarette cards depicts Private Brewster bringing the cartridges to Ugamore, <laughs> actually named him as Private Brewster. Uh, which, as we've said, didn't come from Cyborn. So it it will be uh, from from the popularity of the, of, of the Conan Doyle stroke Henry Irving play. Mm. I mean, for all, uh, Bernard Shaw was indeed very negative about um, at least Irving's performance. I mean, you can't doubt that uh, a struggler of fifteen and Waterloo have you know pack an emotional punch. Um, Conan Doyle himself, in Memories and Adventures, perhaps with rather more than a glint of hindsight, said that um, uh, my eyes were moist as I wrote it, and that is the surest way to moisten the eyes of others. Uh, to, to, to modern readers, I think the story can feel somewhat sickly and sentimental, but there are some moments that really do um, tug at the heartstrings, even even now, I think. I think Brewster's entrance, uh, but there's a moment where he breaks his pipe and uh, it symbolizes the the fragility of old age and then this final moment when he uh, he is reliving his uh, his his moment at uh, Ugamont where he's shouting the guards need powder the guards need powder before he dies it's quite 
it's very different to anything that we would we would find you know acceptable or, or or stimulating today but it still does manage to pull at the heartstrings and i think it does show how conan doyle understood how to stimulate emotion in the reader something that even bernard shaw recognized in his critical review of waterloo and i think even today with our different sensibilities i think in particular the uh, the whole scene with the with the pipe does work because it, in its very simplicity um that th- this this man who who in his his younger days has, has passed through this 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 battle which was sheer hell on earth mm. um in which the the the, the slaughter was at, at first world war levels uh, he he's experienced this and then as an old man he can be moved to tears mm. by simply breaking his favorite pipe it's very powerful stuff and and interestingly as a as a short play if you take the play version it has incredible tonal shifts within within the matter of a few minutes i mean uh, to perform the whole play is what half an hour probably mm. um and um you know it starts with brewster emerging as a picture of pathetic old age and then then it's almost amusing senility then he becomes more pathetic with the with the pipe almost and then there's more amusing um, moments and quaintness and then incredible dignity as well. And it it varies between the tragic and the comic, showing Conan Doyle's command of the material. And probably the final word on, on the play comes from W.D. King, who, uh, who says this, spiritual transcendence was an idea at the heart of the play, spirit rising above the crude machine of the body and the physical world, which is uh, very relevant when you think about um, Conan Doyle's spiritualism and, and his beliefs in later life. And it, it can also be seen to tie in with with um, some of his his later fiction that, that that's coming up before the First World War. In, the, in the, this this is this is end of an era stuff. This is mm. almost predicting. Here's this this man who's fought at Waterloo, which, uh, as I've previously mentioned, is is seen as as uh, the battle which helped to launch this this great 19th century British empire um that he's dying at the time that the empire itself is 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 about to face great peril uh, at the end of the 19th century this is just before the uh, the high mark of of uh, the high water mark of, of of British imperialism all all fits very symbolically mm-hmm. so that brings us to the end of episode 10 um paul what are we looking at next time Next time, we're going to tackle a Sherlock Holmes story for the first time in the podcast. Uh, We're looking at a story of mystery and diablery in Cornwall in the Devil's Foot. So join us next time for some Sherlockian shenanigans. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. So that brings us to the end of episode 10 and a straggler of Waterloo. (laughs) Whatever. Whatever it's called. (laughs) Whatever he called it. (laughs) 